Friends, it's my birthday next week. And you know what I want this year more than anything? I mean, I want health and happiness for my family, my colleagues, my neighbors. But besides that, it's your recommendation and referral of no such thing. We're nearing our 50th episode, and it would mean the world to have your rating and review of the show wherever you download and listen. If you really wanted to wrap it in a special just for me container, you can punch no such thing podcast.org into social media and tell your friends how much fun you're having with the show. I'd be so grateful. In this episode, I have two special guests, and we're talking about a recent merger that may have gone unnoticed by many. But to me, could be a tiny rumble before a tremendous shift to rock education in a lot of ways. Here were some of the headlines. Ed Surge said, New merger wants to create WeWork for education via digital badges and mini campuses. Inside Higher Ed says, Next for Southern New Hampshire University, game-based learning and digital badges for middle schoolers. And the official press release headline was, Southern New Hampshire University and LRNG merged to deploy innovative community-based education strategy in cities across the U.S. That was a long one. My guests today are two critical players leading education reform, research, and practice in this country. Dr. Kylie Pepler is an artist by training, associate professor of learning sciences at UC Irvine, and engages in research that focuses on the intersection of arts, computational technologies, and interest-driven learning. She's also the chief learning officer at LRNG. Connie Yowell is the CEO of LRNG, bringing considerable experience from the MacArthur Foundation, where she oversaw a $150 million program on digital media and learning. Prior to joining the foundation, she was an associate professor at the University of Illinois. Connie briefly served as a policy analyst in the U.S. Department of Education during the Clinton administration. In 2004, Connie received the Distinguished Fellows Award from William T. Grant, under which she worked with the National Writing Project to develop approaches that integrate Web 2.0. Man, that's a term I haven't heard in a while. Technologies into the social practices of teachers. My thanks to Kylie and Connie for joining You'll hear a change in audio on Connie's mic midway through the interview. We had some technical difficulties with our connection, but persevered. Whether or not you agree with me that their story could be a taste of new education paradigms to come, I hope you'll join me in cheering them on. We need all of the brains we can get iterating toward a future where learning is accessible, connected, and counted for everyone. This is no such thing. Kylie and Connie, um, this is exciting for me. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a, a two birds with one stone in that uh, I get to chat with some uh, longtime colleagues and friends, and and also. Uh, you know, people are out there doing amazing things and all of a sudden, you know, a, a sort of uh, spark flares and something amazing is happening. And it's a great reason for us to reconnect and, and hear from each other about uh, how each of us is sort of uh, carrying the torch in a different way. So um, uh, 
Connie, yours is work that I have really long admired. And, and I also, um, I give a lot of credit to for, um, motivating me to sort of be in this field in the first place. And I've told you that in, in the past. Um, so I was so excited to, to hear that there are new things happening with your project at LRNG. Um, I want to start at the, at the sort of start, um, when you, I'm going to link to LRNG's website in the show notes so that folks can check out some of the great media that you all have there. And I think one of the things you do really nicely is capture um, through visually and, and through narrative some of what you're trying to achieve. So um, one of the taglines from uh, the short film uh, that sort of encapsulates Isolates the the effort overall uh, has a tagline that says um, the evolution of learning is the phrase. And I, I think that that's uh, a beautiful way to think of uh, what you all are after. But can you describe, Connie, in your in your mind and then uh, maybe, Kylie, you can you can add on. What does that mean? Yeah, happy to do that, Mark. And before I do, though, just want to say. I have also been a long admirer of yours, and it's wonderful to be in conversation, and congrats on the podcast. It's going beautifully and is a real value added to the field, so thank you for your work. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, So, as you can imagine, I have thought about this question a lot, and it has evolved and morphed over time. And I'm now in a place where I try to speak to it as specifically as I can. Um, As you can imagine, I'm in the place of building, iterating, and implementing. And when you're in that place, you're trying to be as specific and concrete as possible. So rather than than wax uh, and wane poetic and narrative, I'm going to be super specific in my response, which is to say two, uh, two things. First is the evolution of learning has to take three big challenges into account. Um, as we transform what our learning looks like and what our learning infrastructure is. One, it has to take into account scale. We've never really designed uh, educational learning system that actually is for everyone. And so this question of scale and equity has to be at at the core of what the evolution of learning is. We have to transform with new digital tools what the actual learning experience is. Hmm. There'll be a major shift and major transformation. And third, it has to take into account the needs of the future of work, which is a different set of skills and competencies than our previous educational system was necessarily focused on. And so when we think about the evolution of learning, we've got to take those three things into consideration. Now I've got five things that I'm very specific about. Kevin Kelly has written a really nice book. Kevin Kelly's the original ed- editor and founder of Wired Magazine. Yeah. And in it, he's, he's written a book on the, um, sort of inevitability of the future of tech. And part of the way he talks about it, and I think it's really helpful framing, is he sort of says, well, you know, the Internet was inevitable. Facebook was not. Mm. The mobile phone was inevitable. iPhone, not necessarily. Yeah. Cloud computing is inevitable. AWS, not so much. And so in that frame, I've tried to think hard about what I think is inevitable in the shifts for the future of learning. So at the top of that, as we think about what is the evolution of learning, it is the evolution of a time-based system to a competency-based system. Mm. It's the evolution of a system based on curriculum to a, based on playlists that are modularized 
and granular. It's the evolution from grades and diplomas to alternative credentials that, again, are granular and stackable. It's the evolution from teachers that stand in the front of the classroom to peer-based mentoring and guides. And finally, it's the evolution from a single institution to a networked ecosystem. Um, And all of that then gets designed around, it is the shift from designing for efficiency Hmm. to designing for the user. And so the evolution, those I think are all inevitable shifts that are going to be taking place over the next five to 10 years. What then we call them and what is popularized and how they get canonized in particular tools or particular models, don't necessarily know, but they will all have those elements in them in order to sort of be at the core of what is the evolution of learning. Yeah. Can I come back, come back to something you said? Uh, sure. I just, I just want to pull out. Um, so uh, time-based systems versus competency-based systems. Um, can you unpack that a tiny bit? So um, I know what you mean, I think, yeah. um, but it might help to just describe what we mean. Sure. Our current educational system is managed around time. Our kids spend 180 days in the classroom. A class consists of 45 minutes. You have to have in higher ed, you have to, the Carnegie units, you have to have so many hours in a seat in order for it to count as credit. We will shift away from that definition of how learning is measured and we'll be moving towards, if you can demonstrate that you have competency, it doesn't matter how much time you put in. Mm-hmm. You may put in 10 hours and somebody else may put in 30 minutes, but the core, the goal is actually that you, that the learner is developing competency. Yeah. And we'll be focusing on the learner and their competency, less on the institution and how it manages time. Yeah. That's a big shift. It's a massive shift. Mark- I I wanted to add here about sort of what that means for equity. Yeah. So when we do this switch and we move um, to really evaluating competencies, what that means is that that I don't have to sit in a class and demonstrate this in a classroom type setting that I might be. um, So for example, we've, we've seen from our employers that we're working with that showing up on time is actually really valued again and again. And so what they look at, because they don't have any other measure of it, they look at um, tardiness to school and absenteeism rates as as really good evidence of that. But it could come from showing up to your soccer class. It could come from all sorts of other things. If you think about, you know, kids that are stuck in hard places where, you know, they've got to get grandma to, you know, their weekly chemotherapy session. And so, um, so they're constantly late to school, you know, for these chemotherapies on a, on a weekly basis. So in one sense, they're being penalized, but on another sense that they're really good at not showing up on time. And so if we give people alternative ways to demonstrate those kind of competencies, instead of these sort of standard measures, now all of a sudden we've got a way um, for people to shine outside of, outside of our traditional systems. Yeah. I think that makes a lot, um, a lot of sense and is a really important distinction. Um, it makes me think a little bit of, uh, I have a, a, a family member right now who is a high school student and, and he goes through some, um, some medical issues and that keep him out of school for long periods of time. And, uh, when he sits down with his, 
teachers, schools have been terrific and making things um, extremely accessible for him. Uh, the exercise they go through together is, um, you know, don't worry about all this filler. Just do this to show me um, your competency in this in this area. And that's a wonderful thing for him. But but the trigger, you know, the flag for me is, wait a second, you know, what is all this other filler that every other student is doing and why don't they have the opportunity um, to just figure out what these milestones are and, and just come with it? You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and I think Kylie's I mean, the, the core of all of our work is grounded in the challenges of ensuring equity. And so that's part of the reason each of these transitions, as we think about the evolution of learning, needs to be designed in a way that holds equity as it's constant. Yeah. So yeah. so so let's talk about LRNG um, concretely. Mm -hmm. uh, what and who is LRNG sort of technically speaking, I know that it's, it's more than the tech and, and yep. we're going to talk about that, but, um, technically speaking, what is LRNG? So from a technical perspective, what we offer is LRNG is a multi-sided platform. So when you think about the infrastructure that's needed to support networked ecosystems, I would argue that we don't have an infrastructure to actually support that at scale. So part of the premise of LRNG is we believe that we need multi-sided platforms in order to support network ecosystems of learning. Yeah. And that is what we're building. Um, let me describe, can I describe a little bit about what I mean by multi-sided? Please. So a multi-sided platform is a technology platform that enables multiple stakeholders, constituents, customers to interact with each other. So, uh, Uber is a multi-sided platform because on one side, it has a whole infrastructure for the drivers, mm. right? And that infrastructure includes GPS. It includes money being able to use credit cards and money flow and a whole set of technologies are aggregated there. And it works very well for the driver. Yep. The beauty of the driver side of that platform is that you can participate in that ecosystem and all you need is a skill. You can drive a car and an asset. You have a car. You don't have to have a business. You don't have to have a website. You don't have to recruit customers. You can just participate because it organizes the ecosystem for you. Other side of the platform is direct to the, the rider. So when you and I open up, whether it's Uber or Airbnb or Lyft or any of those, we open up a web page or an app that works beautifully for us. It's not the same technology that the driver uses. It's actually got another side to the platform. And it is a it is an app that enables us to do what we need to do by participating in the ecosystem. Yeah. And so it is a platform. So fast forward to LRNG. What then is LRNG with that as a metaphor? We have one side of our platform that is meant for direct to youth. Because we think that particularly in the over 14, as, as, we, as our learners get a little bit older, we have to own and be held accountable for designing directly to them and in a way that is engaging for them. 
that when a young person opens up LRNG, they should be able to find learning experiences that connect to their interests. They be, should be able to find opportunities that connect to their interests. They should be able to find pathways and playlists that allow them to become competent and earn credentials in the areas that they want to become competent in and earn credentials. Yeah. The other side of the platform is designed for practitioners, employers, all of those folks that want to engage and help young people become competent at something. Yep. And it, the, the other side, the back end of our platform enables them to find content and remix it for the folks that they're working with. It enables them to track and have data related to them. It enables assessment and the awarding of alternative credentials. So then that means that we are a community-based organization. So then anyone in the community who has a set of skills can teach, can work with young people, wants to be a part of that ecosystem. And if they have assets, they may have their own content. They may have their own face-to-face programs that they want young people to be able to find can participate in this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. LRNG then organizes all of that into interest-based playlists that work for young people so that we enable communities, schools, community-based organizations, teachers, um, businesses to work collaboratively on one end of the platform and to have that go direct to young people. So we think that it is the infrastructure that's absolutely necessary to allow our institutions to shift from working in isolated ways to working as part of networked communities. Yeah. I want to, I I think it's a a beautiful vision. I want to get to the, uh, some of the, some of the hiccups and and bottlenecks there, Mm -hmm. which are, are particularly on my mind. Um, after having uh, lots of conversation recently about, about, uh, you know, the, some of the ethics of building that infrastructure and thinking about, um, you know, h- how we get beyond our um, current cultural patterns and understanding about how we do things like create privacy agreements and, yeah. and terms of service and these kinds of things, because we really need to kind of redo all that. Um, yeah. uh, I, w- I want to get there, but, but first this is this, there is a, um, a pretty great legacy to this work. Um, it comes from, you know, it feels to some degree we're at a point in time, I guess this is the case for anything that, you know, what, whatever point in time, uh, you're in is sort of the confluence of, of what came before it. But this in particular, um, Maybe because I know the landscape a little bit, but there are so many players and and so many sort of steps along the way. Yeah. Um, if if you guys are anything like me, you uh, probably hoped ten years ago that uh, we were um, at the sort of the moment of realizing this vision. We you know we would have been there already. Um, but uh, tell me sort of. What came before this that led to to where LRNG is now um, as a way for people to just sort of understand um, how much momentum this effort has currently and and just how much it's taken, uh, how many moving parts there are? Yeah, and, and it's been an extraordinary journey that I feel that I've been incredibly privileged to be a part of. So it LRNG 
rests on top of a 15-year, a legacy of 15 years, $250 million engagement and literally thousands of people doing extraordinary work. So 15 years ago, might be 17 now, I started at the MacArthur Foundation and became the director of education at MacArthur. Yeah. In about 2003, 2004, we launched a, a, what was then a modest initiative on digital media and learning. And the board at MacArthur was really pushing me to 2003, 2004. Remember, that's pre-Facebook, pre-iPhone. <laughs> Yes. To sort of look around the corner and and really think about what does the future of learning look like in a digital world? Um, and I will confess that initially I said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think technology has anything to do with learning and there is no future there and I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then met some really brilliant people from Will Wright to Mimi Ito to Katie Salen and Kylie and a set of others who helped me to understand that the power of the technology is actually in the ability to completely redesign the pedagogical experience for our young people. Mm. And so we then set on a, a, a pretty dramatic course for 10 years of really trying to understand from the youth, from the learner's perspective, what do these new to- tools enable that transform what the learning experience can look like. Mm-hmm. And I was very rigid. I got a lot. I would say that we got a lot of criticism initially from colleagues in the philanthropic world because MacArthur in that work chose not to go in and invest in reimagining uh, schools mm-hmm. or really focusing on the educational system because we were really insistent that until we understood what the future vision of learning is and could be, that we didn't know actually what the systems needed to be to support that. And we didn't want to presuppose. And we also didn't want to be constrained by the current design of schools. And so that first part of that work was really doing deep ethnographic work and spending an enormous amount of time with young people trying to understand how they use digital media and how we might think about the shifts in that digital media um, in order to transform what engagement looks like. So I really, at a time when philanthropy was really shifting hard to being outcomes-based, I had a board at MacArthur that was really focused on narrative and on storytelling Mm. and were open enough to understand that when you're doing the first part of innovation, it is not about hitting outcomes. It is about discovery and exploration and about really, we wanted to understand what does engagement look like? Yeah. Like, how do you design? Kids are doing learning things now because they have to. How do you design a world in which they want to? And in which you've created a need to know for them so that they are self-directed and moving on their own. And that was three or four or five years of deep design work that we were doing. Once we moved through that and really got to this place of understanding this notion that came out of the community called connected learning. Mm-hmm. And we got folks like Mimi Ito and Elise eidman Adal and Richard Aram and Kylie and Katie uh, Salen and Nicole Pinkard. Uh, with the Digital Youth Network and you guys at Mouse that were doing really extraordinary work to help us define that. And once we really got clear on defining what that looks like, then we panicked because none of our institutions were really able to do it. Hmm. And so then it then started requiring us to shift into 
and we were very deep in the games world with Jim G and a set of others, um, of what does it mean then to reimagine? And we started with libraries and museums, knowing that the schools were going to be the hardest to change. And that if we wanted to transform schools, we had to transform the community around the schools to enable um, the burden of transformation to ease and lessen for schools. Then we started working with libraries and museums and communities and creating hives in Chicago and New York and Pittsburgh to really bring together community change around this notion of um, really at the center of connected learning is this notion that the, at its simplest, that the best learning happens when the learner has something they care about getting better at. They have an interest, a purpose, a passion, whatever you want to call it, that they are then connected to and part of a peer-based community that has mentors and guides in it that share that interest and share the desire to build competency and get better at it. And that as you're building competency, it's relevant. It's connected to the real world. And so if you can connect purpose or passion with community, with relevancy in the real world and payoff in the real world, you have a really dynamic and robust approach to learning where time on task goes off the chart, development of competency happens. There's an affinity group that develops around that. The problem is... Those three things exist in different systems. Mm -hmm. Where I explore my interest and my passion is often in an informal learning community or home. Where I really engage with peers that share my interests is often out of school or at home. Relevancy can happen in school or in work. And so the, the reason for a network ecosystem is that we've got to bring the entire community and its assets together in order to create those opportunities. Yeah. And part of the equity question is privileged parents do that. Privileged parents knit those experiences together. Privileged parents raise the level of reflection for their young people around the connections amongst those things. And privileged parents build the networks and connections to the real world. And so we have this really, I think, significant gap between those that get access to those kinds of connected learning experiences and outcomes and those that don't. And so it took us 15 years to sort of move through that trajectory of early discovery, innovation, playing with and developing the tools that might be necessary for the new infrastructure and building exemplary models of, well, how do you do this in an institutional context? How, what might this look like on the ground? Um, and so then when I then sort of, yeah, and that was sort of what took us so much time. And I'll stop there because that also then led to my spin out into LRNG. Yeah. yeah. Kylie, I'm curious um, as a, so much of your work has been focused on um, pedagogies and um, you're somebody who knows so much about the, that sort of history. And I just wonder, so my, my question uh, is, is kind of par baked. Um, but I wonder to what degree you feel like um, these things that, that we've been realizing over the last 15 or 20 years are even built over a, a longer history um, you know, you're a student of, of people like Seymour Papert and others who um, 
we're really realizing things about um, how engagement happens and and uh, and um, I, I just, I, well, I wonder to what degree you feel like uh, we're now trying to put infrastructure to something that is has an, an even longer history. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right, is that so much of what um, we've done and sort of formulating both the, both the uh, technical platform as well as the services is to really think about how people learn and how we can support that process. So much of what we've been trying to do is to help um, translate the sort of this, uh, you know, theoretical perspectives on learning into sort of practical tools. Um, so I just want to give you a couple examples of that, you know, for, for listeners. Um, so one thing that we've, we've always kind of known is that people sort of build um, things a little bit by bit and they start to build them up. Um, you know, so this could be, you know, from um, um, like a constructivist or a constructionist perspective, as you mentioned, um, that Seymour would talk about it, that people start to make, um, uh, sort of make the world around them and sort of start to think about their learning. We've translated this into the platform as we've thought about our base unit as an XP or an experience, so that you start to build these experiences over time um, in what we call a playlist. And that those playlists then can be badged or accredited in some way. Um, but, but this becomes really important. And this, this grew out of our earlier uh, work for the, the DML uh, work with Connie earlier, is that, you know, we were trying to bridge this gap between these really great tools and technologies and um, classroom practice. And so we created these, um, uh, a four book uh, curriculum series, you know, together with Nicole Pinkard and Melissa Grisolfi and, and uh, Katie Salen. And, uh, and what we, what we had envisioned at the at the start was just small pieces that, that educators could put together in different ways and in different combinations, depending on what they wanted to achieve. But at the time, the technology didn't really exist. Um, so we had to go to um, a four-book curriculum series through MIT Press. And those have been, you know, great sellers and, and um, were a great technology at the time. But you can imagine... Um, most educators don't pull that off and just go line by line through it. They pick little pieces, they move through it, um, and they start to make it their own. Um, so in one respect, what we did with the, um, the LRNG platform is that those XPs, those little experiences that you offer youth in your classroom or that they might experience out at the library or different, different pieces, now all of a sudden you can put those together um, and then you can remix them in different ways. And so, uh, so the platform allows you to share your practice. The, uh, the platform also allows you to build on the practices of others and to sort of uniquely combine them and to localize them. Um, so uh, you know, we hope this saves people time, but also uh, we want to be really sensitive to the fact that that learning is really situated in the in the environments around us, and that everybody needs to start to make um, something uh, specific to their context. That makes a ton of sense. Um, given time, and I don't want to I don't want to keep you guys all afternoon, although I could um, because I feel like we have so we have so much ground uh, to cover, but. Um, Flashing forward to where we are now, there's this exciting news with Southern New Hampshire University. Um, LRNG is going through uh, this merger and um, things are now 
official. And uh, so I'm curious to hear from from you both about uh, where SNHU comes in and, and what's the vision moving forward. If you had told me three years ago when I was spinning out of MacArthur that I would merge with a higher ed institution, you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> I have I have long not thought of higher ed as the site of massive innovation. Yeah. Uh, nor an ability to move quickly. And and neither of those is a descriptor of SNHU. SNHU is the largest nonprofit university in the country. But more than that, under the visionary leadership of Paul LeBlanc, it has really taken on the task of transforming what higher education means at scale. And how do you provide a high-quality, high-touch educational experience at, at radically low cost. Uh, and they are constantly iterating on that every day on that question. Um, and they're looking to do it both in the United States and globally. And so we have found an incredible partner that cares and has at the core of its mission, the experience of the learner and guides every question and every move that it makes is guided by the question of what's best for our learner and how do we do what's best for our learner at super, super low cost. Uh, and so, so it has been, it is an extraordinary opportunity for us to then think about really what does the backend infrastructure need to be in order to scale for our low-income youth in their communities uh, in a way that works best for them enables us to build, which is what we do well at LRNG, the horizontal ecosystem, meaning really connecting for the young person what's happening in their world and their family and their community, that school and, and, and potential around work, and really building that ecosystem and then connecting in a really uh, robust way to the vertical ecosystem so that our kids can move seamlessly from uh, high school and from the context that they're in when they're 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, into another robust ecosystem that's designed for them. Yeah. And so with a merger, we, just, we have this sort of evolving approach to an ecosystem that is, uh, with LRNG, deeply uh, integrated into community and can be hyper-local and global at the same time. Yeah. Is so it, we're super excited about the merger. Yeah. Um, a, a couple things. One, to clarify on, we said ecosystems a, a lot. And um, so mm-hmm. so it, am I right to, to, generally speaking, we're talking about a horizontal ecosystem that is community-based and a vertical ecosystem that's institutional. Is that, does that sound right? Um. Actually, the SNHU insti- uh, ecosystem is growing. So we are partnering um, with their program called College for America. Yeah. College for America is a competency-based approach to learning that is designed in collaboration with businesses and with community partners. So SNHU has also, in the last three years, made this step into, yes, we are phenomenal and deliver high-quality education online. And we have figured out how to provide a competency-based education that ensures our young people can work and go to school at the same time and receive supports from community partners. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so it's they're, they've got an emerging broader ecosystem that we are integrating into that's, uh, that I think is uh, really forward forward looking. So what's the what's the right way to think about the horizontal and vertical that you described? Right. So there was the uh, horizontal I, ecosystem, yeah. um, which is sort of interest driven for young people that support it at a very local level. The horizontal, what I was describing as institutional is, is sort of like how you how you um, stitch that horizontal together with uh, a pathway into careers is am I? Yeah, I think and, and I think that's right. When we think about the, um, the horizontal ecosystem, we are thinking about it in terms of really building robust, connected learning experiences that are community-based uh, for mm-hmm. our young people that are preparing them uh, for their future in career, college, and life. And it. it's, it's project and experientially based. So when we say prepare for, we're uh, we're talking about preparation by actually doing. So right. it's, it's a, it's a, it, it is consistent with all of the constructivist, progressive, and Deweyan notions of what good learning looks like. And then yep. on the vertical, it is, I think, more institutional in that our, our learners then move formally into being students in college while also being in, if you want to call it an institution. We hope, we think that our low-income youth um, and it's, it's not just low income, actually. I think there is a benefit to working and learning at the same time, so long as those things are integrated and not parallel. Yeah, got it. We're we're uh, okay. Yeah, I think that's helpful clar- clarification. And and I do. I actually think it's a, a useful. I would have abandoned the uh, the analogy <laughs> if it got too complicated. Yeah. But I actually do think it's a useful. Uh, way to think of it. Um, yeah, SNHU, a part of what I'm so excited about for LRNG, it's a lot of uh, uh, acronyming, mm-hmm. um, is uh, SNHU, uh, man, you and me both on the higher ed and innovation piece, uh, things like their Dreamers program. I'm going to drop some, some links to some of the things that SNHU has been up to in the show notes for this episode. But um, if you don't know what's happening at SNHU um, and a couple other um, higher ed institutions who are who are very much um, uh, building toward a different different kind of future, I encourage everybody to check um, check this out because uh, it is not um, at least as as best as I can tell, uh, this is not lip service toward uh, a different, more equitable future. It's it's uh, really putting some serious skin in the game. So that's extremely exciting to me. I gotta say, I come out of, I'm a former tenured professor. I come out of higher ed and academia and I've never seen an institution so focused and moving forward and so committed to making change if it means disrupting what they generally do um, ever. So for us, yeah. it, it, I mean, that was the initial sort of uh, dance as we started courting each other was, wow, are you for real? And yeah. we, we soon discovered that they really are for real. And the folks that work there across the board have just been extraordinary. Um, so we yeah. think it's, and the other thing that I would say is um, 
I think these mergers are really necessary. I think it is going to be impossible for any one institution to transform learning in the ways that it needs to be transformed. And so we're all going to need, we, those of us in the nonprofit and even the for-profit space, need to be looking at each other and, and sort of rolling up our sleeves so that we don't lose this next generation and saying, let's not compete with each other. Let's figure out how we can actually work together um, and go after this hard because it, it, this isn't about a competitive market and the winner sort of gets to the top. This is about building a whole new infrastructure for the future of learning. And we have to be in this together to make it happen. Well said. And I think that... Um... It's a hard thing to remember when you're in the throes of a merger. Um, I know something about that, but um, it's so important to come back and remind ourselves uh, of what you just said. It's it's a bigger problem than uh, than any one institution or organization. Um, and that's one of the things that excited me so much about um about hearing that LRNG and, and SNHU were, were getting together. Um, tell me, tell me one of the things that, uh, part of the legacy of LRNG that, that some of this future vision is built on is, um, is work around credentialing or, or many know as digital badging. Um, why do you, uh, see that as a big part of the picture? So, Today's youth really need to know that what they're doing matters. And so as we think about how do we start to stack up all of the things that they're doing uh, towards some sort of meaningful end, uh, badges and, and alternative certifications become a really, really important part of that process. Also really key to equity as we move forward, um, both equity for the individual uh, creating them, but also for the organizations offering um, these kinds of learning experiences for our youth. So if, if you sort of take a deep dive and you're looking at a, sort of our standardized testing system, you can kind of see that it's only emphasizing a very few, you know, core sets of competencies, um, you know, and, and we believe that these are going to be cross-cutting and that they're important, um, um, but we haven't really tested that hypothesis. Um, so we have a lot of out-of-school organizations and workforce kind of saying, actually, it's the social-emotional skills, it's the arts, it's the mm. other things that have kind of fallen uh, to the wayside in the standard space to uh, push to reform. And so um, as you start to bring in an alternative credential and badging into, into this ecosystem, you can start to say, hey, what they're doing actually matters. And here's how these um, uh, you know, competencies can start to stitch together um, to start to become something more meaningful. Um, so at the core of you know, post-merger um, LRNG and, and SNHU, we're really trying to see how can we start to make these badges stack to college credit or credentials um, that would be recognized by employers. Um, I'll, I'll pause there, Connie, so you can talk a little bit more about um, how we're operationalizing them. And I think part of, uh, as Kylie noted, part of what's really critical, and there, there are similar efforts with the Mastery Transcript Consortium and others that are really trying to shift again. It's this movement away from a single institution as owning what counts as learning to a network ecosystem and creating the tools that enable that to happen. And in doing that, we have to shift who owns the learning record. So right now, the school systems and the institutions own the learning record. 
And over time, we've got to shift that in, in ways similar to what healthcare has done, which has really enabled the learner to own their own learning record and to carry it with them. Mm. And so that's been a really important part of the um, open badge movement. And in doing that, we have to come to terms with what are the standards or what is the information, whether we call it an open badge or a micro-credential, what's the standardized set of kinds of information that we want that digital entity to carry so that it enables interoperability. So that a badge earned in one institution can have credibility and value in another institution. Those institutions have to have, um, similar to email, they have to have agreed. uh, We have to have a standard for what the information is that's being carried from that one place to the next. Um, And that's really been, I think, one of the big value adds of the open badge is that with the foresight of the Mozilla Foundation, um, who helped to create the open badge, but we really sort of started creating that standard of what's the information that should be carried to enable interoperability across institutions. And that's been yeah. super critical. What I'll also say though, Mark, I know that you want to sort of talk about what's a sticking point and what's been really hard. Part of yeah. what's been really hard is exactly what the educational system is set up to be and to do, which is to be locally controlled uh, and to um, be, in in some sense, fragmented. So that in order to make change happen, in order to really get buy-in into these new forms and these new tools, there's no easy way to do it other than having to go from one school to the next school to the one employer to the next employer, and it becomes a Herculean task to bring everybody along on the journey because we have such a fragmented and siloed approach to education. So part of, uh, and that's been part of the challenge to the open badges and to alternative credentials is that uh Tier 2-4, before the SNHU merger, we've not been able to wrap an entire ecosystem into the value of an open badge uh, and the value of it, either the value of uh, an open badge having value in a high school, having value in a community-based organization, having value in a higher ed institution, and having value with an employer. Like all of those folks have to be engaged in the conversation in order to actually build an ecosystem. So one yeah. of the other big benefits of the merger with SNHU is that it is um, an accredited institution. It is rather than go one badge at a time with SNHU, we will be building out um, an entire infrastructure of badges that will align with and count for college credit and be integrated into the work that they are doing with College for America and with companies. So we think we've got a shot at building a really robust exemplar of an infrastructure that is coherent, will cross multiple types of institutions with a whole new set of tools on multi-sided platforms that enable the ecosystem to thrive. It's going to be a lot of work. But part of the, the reason for the merger with SNHU is it's time to do this at scale and move us out of we're going to have individual conversations with individual partners in individual cities around the United States 
instead really think about what um, what it means to have badges count across different institutions and higher ed can drive that. Do you are you guys familiar with this um, the book Walk Out Walk On? No. Uh-uh. Um, so so there's there's this book by I'm reading this book so and uh, so this is going to be a only half informed uh, connection to uh, other work that's happening um, in the world of kind of uh, ethnography and and uh, so um, Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Freeze wrote this book and and the it's it's a series of stories. Uh, from from around the world of um, how leadership emerges locally. And they talk about um, the idea of scale as being translocal as opposed to, uh, you know, the way we've been sort of conceiving of it. And and it it to me, it connects to this conversation around uh, how we navigate and negotiate these uh, the 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 coming together of these ecosystems because it, it it's tricky because in a lot of ways what we're trying to do is continue to empower something that's very local um, but help it to gain credibility in such a way that it converses with uh, a, a a global um, civilization i don't know i don't know how to call it um but anyway it it's kind of the it's been really intriguing to me i'm only about halfway through the book and but i think that the idea is an important and interesting one obviously the the uh trick is for all of us is how to make those ideas practical but they they look really closely at some of the um what's happening in education in mexico and uh in these um very sort of community driven no teachers, no administration, um, universities that are happening in the, the Zapatista, uh, movement and, and elsewhere. And it's, it's really intriguing. And I think, uh, an interesting, albeit, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, long bridge, uh, from USK 12 to those spaces, but I think a really interesting one to think about. Um, That's right. that was not a question. Yeah, but no, I think I, I just bought the book while you were talking. So, I'm looking forward to to reading it. And I think that's exactly right. Because at the end of the day, learning is relational and it's local. It just is. That's how we function as individuals and as humans. At the same time, there can be a global infrastructure that enables that to happen. And it's not about standardizing. It's not about teacher proofing. It's not about everybody doing the same thing about Mm -hmm. providing a set of tools, infrastructure, materials, and resources that allow folks to then make use of those in a customized and local way. And that's really really what we're after and what we're trying to design for with LRNG, and it's super hard. Yeah. It's just really hard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What... um... I want to let you guys go before I do. Um, can can you let's um, let's finish this conversation? I hope it's the first of many that we have about LRNG on the show because I do want to uh, keep in touch and and sort of up to speed with what's happening. As as so much of the work at LRNG uh, is is the work that uh, we do at Mouse and and so many organizations are are really working to move the needle on. Um, 
uh, let's just talk about the vision 10 years from now for a second. And, and what do you hope, uh, for, for both of you, um, what do you hope that looks like in, in practical terms? Um, you know, maybe you want to step inside, um, you know, Connie, I know you have, uh, teenage kids and, uh, maybe you want to step inside their world and sort of think about what it looks like for, a, a young person who's transitioning from, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, teens to twenties, uh, maybe, uh, we want to think about adult education, but in, in your mind, what are, what are sort of some of the visions that help you get up in the morning and feel like, you know, this is all exactly what we should be doing. Yeah. Asking Connie about her kids is a good way to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, 10 years from now, I, I really hope that LRMG has created models and um, that other people have joined us in, in embarking on this journey. And so models of, of um, you know, connecting cities and workforce partners to schools, um, you know, I hope we can see measurable impacts on, um, you know, increased youth employment, um, a better understanding of how to enter the workforce, um, employers having a better understanding of, of how to, um, you know, move their organizations uh, so they can find uh, the right talent um, uh, to diversify their workforce and, and to improve and um, those outcomes. Um, you know, a whole host of things. You know, I, I hope LRNG finds its way into schools um, at even uh, faster rates than, than where we're even currently at um, so that teachers can sort of leverage this practice and share their innovative practice and, and really be encouraged um, to break the molds of what they're currently doing. Um, I hope youth um, you know, that kind of grow up in that next generation will be past these uh, millennials currently coming in through the system. But um, but this next generation, I really hope that they find their passions um, through the help of LRNG and, and others kind of um, using similar efforts um, and that they connect those passions to what they want to do in the future. Um, we know that these are all really, really hard problems um, that, that we want to solve. I think what I'd add to that is I, 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 we've sort of, corrupted, I think, the notion of what work is over the, the last 50 or so years. And at the core, you know, if you look work, the, the word work up, whether it's a noun or a verb, it is really about being engaged in physical or mental activity in order to achieve a purpose. Yeah. And so that is part of the definition of what really good learning looks like. And so I hope in 10 years, when I think about my own sons, that for them, the notion of learning and work are tightly integrated and that they are working and learning in a context that aligns with their purpose and their interests, that as they are moving forward in their work and are tasked with challenges that have meaning for them and are a little bit too hard for them, that they are able yeah. to turn to multi-sided platforms like LRNG and find uh, opportunities to do the learning and the building of the competency and the resources that they need in order to tackle that real world challenge or problem. And that as they're doing that, they're also easily finding their community that they can participate in that shares those goals and shares the desire to build that competency. And they may engage that community in an online world. They may go to their local library and have a meetup and have it be about the thing that they are particularly interested in. And so whether that's work in an existing institution or, or job or, or place, 
Or it could be that in 10 years that our young people are really focused on entrepreneurship and have this sort of life that has multiple things in it, that they have their own entrepreneurial passion that they are moving forward with at the same time that they have a set of colleagues with whom they're working in a more formal work institution, but that our young people are, are skilled in being able to integrate those multiple kinds of experiences, because I think that's what the future is going to look like, um, and that we as educational institutions or as folks committed to learning have shifted what we count as success enough so that our young people are constantly building the kinds of skills and competencies they need to negotiate the complex world that we live in. Amen. I think that's a, a, a great place for us to land for now. And um, uh, in addition to LRNG.org, uh, where should people follow the, uh, the progress? Twitter, it's uh, we are LRNG. And I am at Twitter, great. hashtag at Connie. Awesome. Yeah, I'm at Dr. Pepler. One of my favorite uh, social media <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. Ever. I was like, yeah, it's a lifelong dream come true. <laughs> you know, so, sometimes a play on words is exactly what's called for. Um, guys, thank you so much for making the time. This, this, uh, it, it means a lot to me in a few different ways to have you, uh, join the show and, and talk about this exciting news. So, uh, huge and th- and thank you, Mark, for having us. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 